didn't know that I was going to be here today. I actually asked Joe to preach. And then about 10 o'clock, we decided to head home. And I'm like, I got this. Joe, I'll be ready. I was so eager to share this message with you guys. So I'm excited to be here. It was funny. I actually thought I was going to be the only one from the family. Nicole was just wiped out from taking care of her mom. I was trying to sneak out this morning, and Ty woke up. So he was like, we're going to church, right? And I'm like, yes. Yes, we are. So got him ready. We were ready to get out. And then Jake woke up and went, church? And I was like, yep, church. So the three of us jumped in the car, and we're all here today. Nicole's getting some rest, so I ask you to just keep her mom in prayers as she's recovering. Um, I don't typically do this, but I'm going to have Alan play a video clip for us in a second. But before he starts it, let me set it up for you. Um, I like movies, and of all the movie universes that I've watched, I love superhero films, I love the Marvel movies, I've watched the Dark Knight Batman trilogy over and over again, but there's one set of films that I've watched so many times I cannot even count them. Now I attribute a lot of that to TNT and TBS, because when I was a young child these, these movies would basically just be on repeat every weekend, and they were the Rocky films. All right, and so I've seen Rocky 1, 2, 3, and 4 more times than I can possibly count. And so it's often that I find in life scenarios that I go, you know what that reminds me of? Rocky. Well, I was reading Ephesians chapter 6 this week, and there was this part of it that made me think of this moment in Rocky 2. Now, if you're not a Rocky fan, raise your hand if you've seen Rock, the Rocky movies. All right? See, American classic right there. All right, so in Rocky 1, Rocky's a nobody. He's a loser nobody, and he gets this amazing shot. So when he goes to fight as a boxer, what he's known for is this unbelievable will to keep pushing forward. And part of it is that he's driven by, he has nothing to lose. He has absolutely nothing to lose. And so the brilliant thing about this guy is like, no matter what you do to him, he just keeps coming. In fact, there's one point in the first film where his team's tell him, like, stay down. And he just keeps getting back up. Well, in the second movie, life's changed a little bit. He's gone from this guy who's a nobody to this guy who now has a wife, a baby on the way. He's built this reputation as this guy who now has gone toe-to-toe with one of the greatest fighters in the world. So he now has respect, respect in his community. And so as he's preparing for the second fight, his attitude's different. In the first one, he would do anything and everything because he had nothing to lose. But in the second one, he's, he's been training, but he hasn't really been training. Because while he's working out and while he's getting ready, there's this fear in him, there's this worry in him that he might lose everything he's gained. And so there's this pivotal part in the movie where he's been kind of not really training hard, his wife doesn't really know if she wants him to fight, she's gone to have the baby, and, and he's about ready to give up. He's about ready to stop, and, and this is where we'll pick up. So, Alan, go ahead and play the clip for me. There's one thing I want you to do for me. What? Come here. Mm. Win. Win. What are we waiting for? Take us! I love that part. Makes me want to go run right now. <laughs> I love that part because he's been training all film, but you know what we've been missing the whole time? The training music. In the first part of the movie, Rocky's been working out and there's no training music. Why? Because he's not all in it. 
But then Adrian looks at him and she says, when? And all of a sudden, what do we get? The Rocky theme, right? And now, is he doing two-arm push-ups? No, he's doing one-arm push-ups. And what's happened is, is he's still working out, but what's different now? He's all in. He's all in. He no longer is holding back. He is moving forward with one focus, one goal, and nothing's pulling him back. When I read Ephesians chapter 6, that's what I get from Paul. It's that moment where he's looking at us as Christians going, hey, some of you guys, you're just going through the motions. Yeah, you're going to church. Yeah, you're reading your Bible. Yeah, you're praying. But you're not all in. You're not all in. Your training music isn't playing. And I need you to stop holding back, and I need you to give everything you've got to move forward. All right, so let's dig in here. Ephesians 1 through 3. In this book, as we've been going through it, we said Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 was Paul reminding you who you are. You were a sinner, you were facing death, and what happened? God, in His amazing love, sent His Son Jesus, who lived and loved us, died on a cross, rose from death, and through Him has offered us a new life. He offers to wipe away our sins, and He offers to lift you and I up to be royalty in heaven with Him. Then what happens, it's in Ephesians 4-6, through 6, he goes, if that's who you are, guess what? This is where you should go and this is how you should live. So 1-3 through 3 is who you are. 4-6 through 6 has been, what are you supposed to do in your life? And so that's where in 4-6, through 6, Paul was hitting home on your marriage, on sexual morality, on how you raise your kids, on how you work. He's saying, guys, if you have Christ in you, if you're a new creation with a new life, with the Spirit of God in you, you've got to live different. I should be able to look at your lives and see different actions that show people God is alive in you. And then as he comes to the close of Ephesians 6, he kind of shakes us a bit. He kind of shakes us to remind us that, look, I've told you, you're empowered by God and you're equipped by God, but do not forget you're at war. It's so like I told you last week, some of us as Christians, we think this is a track meet. We think if I'm in shape and I'm fast, the gun goes off and I just run straight to the finish line, it should be smooth sailing. A nice lane painted for me, a nice smooth path, nothing there to stop me. But this isn't track. We got an enemy. This is like football. Yes, I got to go across that line, but you know what I have standing across that line? Strong, powerful enemies doing anything and everything to stop me. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, what Paul's trying to say is, guys, yes, you're empowered. Yes, you'll be victorious. But this is war. Do not be surprised when you get hit. Do not be surprised when you get knocked down. Do not be surprised when bad comes your way. Instead of being shocked, get up and realize, this is what my Father empowered me for. This is what He equipped me for. This is what He's been telling me about. Do not be afraid of that. Expect it and be victorious in it. And so I've said throughout this entire series, the key to this series is what? I'm going to quiz you guys real quick. You guys have heard this like 18 weeks in a row now. What's the key to the series? Nobody? Come on, folks. You can make me go home crying. What verse? John 15, 5. What does Jesus say? I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. 
Now, why is this the key to the series? Because, brothers and sisters, this is the mentality that we go into battle with. If you and I try to stand toe-to-toe with Satan in our own strength and in our own ability, do you know what will happen? We will be destroyed. He will mop the floors with us. You are not strong enough. You are not powerful enough. You are not loving enough. Christ is. The only way you're victorious is if it's the power of Christ working in you. His power, His love, His grace, His strength working through you. He is the vine flowing those nutrients into us, the branches. It's not ourselves. That's how we win this fight. Now in Ephesians 6, 10-20, let's look at what Paul has to say for us. This is his conclusion to the book. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Same thing as John 15, 5. Who are you strong in? Not yourself. You're strong in the Lord. You're strong in the strength of His might. Not yours. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the blessed plate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. So in this, Paul is saying, stand firm, stand in the power that God has given you, and stand equipped with the armor that He has given. So He's giving you the power, He's giving you the armor, and listen to this, this is important. Do you notice that He doesn't say to go attack? He says what? Stand firm. Christ is the one who marches out. Christ is the one who goes and gets new territory. Your job and mine is when the enemy comes is to brace ourselves and to stand firmly not giving the ground we're on. That's all we're asked to do is to boldly, powerfully stay where we are and not let our ground be taken. Now there's a few things before we dive into this first piece of armor, the belt of truth, that I want to point out. And that has to do with the enemy yourself. In 1 Peter 5.8, Jesus warns us about Satan. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This goes to that same thing that Paul's trying to say. Wake up, you're at war. This is not you on a nice journey. This is you at battle with an adversary who is unbelievably powerful. And he wakes up every day, Focused on bringing your destruction. Do not forget that. Now as we look at this, I want you to be aware of a few ways that Satan attacks us. A few ways that Satan comes at you and me in our day-to-day walks to bring us down. The first is, is he brings false gods. Throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you continually see Satan not pushing people towards atheism, but pushing them to other gods. 
Biology called the lower G gods, the lowercase g gods. They don't have the power, the grace, the love, the ability of our God, Yahweh. But they are other religions that pull people away from the truth. And often what's more powerful about these is the best lies always have what? A lot of truth in them. See, if you want to take human beings who are shaped and created by God to worship and bring glory to God and then teach them you shouldn't do that, that's hard. Because there's this innate part in us that goes, I think I was built to worship. In fact, even just look at our society. We love to worship. Why, when we watch sports, do we jump out of our seats and scream when somebody does something awesome? Because there's something in us that wants to worship. Why do we have this fascination with celebrities and singers and people of popular ability? Why? Because there's something in us that when we see something amazing, we go, I want to worship that. I want to praise that. I want to call that out. So Satan brilliantly knew, I'm not going to try to fight that instinct in these people. I'm just going to point it in the wrong direction. In the Old Testament, he often did this with other gods. In the New Testament, he got even more refined. Nowadays, the death of Christianity will not come from outside the church. It will come from inside the church. Because what is happening more and more is people now want to say, Oh, I'm a Christian too. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And you go, well, great! You're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. Me too. But then when you start talking to them, you start to realize their Jesus and your Jesus are a little different. You go, well, I'm a Christian. I, I believe this is the Word of God. I believe it is perfect and infallible. It was written by His hand and there is no error in it. And they'll go, oh, I'm a Christian too, but yeah, I think most of that's outdated. I mean, that was written thousands of years ago, totally different culture. I mean, most of this doesn't apply to us anymore. Brothers and sisters, once you say that, you guys are not both Christians. You can, you can label yourself that. But one of you believes this is the Word of God and the other doesn't. It's just like I've met people who go, oh yeah, I, I totally believe in Jesus. Great man. Great teacher. I mean, he wasn't the Son of God. He didn't come back from the dead, but what a great philosophical teacher. That person's Jesus and my Jesus are not the same Jesus. <laughs> And what we see happening is, is the number of people who say they're Christian in America isn't declining. It's staying the same. But it's who that Jesus is that's changing. And Jesus warned us about this. In 2 Corinthians 11.4, Paul says, For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Even back in the first and second centuries, Paul was going, church in Corinth, don't you realize you have teachers preaching a Jesus that's not the Jesus you saw? This is not the Bible you've read. And he's saying, you're putting up with it. Satan has learned to lie and pervert the truth into something slightly different. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we're so careful at our church about one, other churches we work with, and about the people that become members of our church. Because we've learned it used to be when we said Christian, that meant a lot of the stuff was the same. Now we know when we say Christian, it doesn't really mean a lot. It could mean you think the Bible is fantasy. It could mean you think it's the infallible Word of God. But we need to know those things. 
Because the moment we have a different Jesus, a different gospel, we're not worshiping and going the same direction. I'll even encourage some of you to look in your own lives. The biggest change I've seen in American Christianity is the majority of people I know who are Christians actually are going, God, here is my will, bless it. They are not saying, God, I am your servant. Tell me your will and I will do it. Do you understand the difference between those two? It is a completely different thing to stand here and go, my plan, Father, and your ability, you make it happen. Versus stand over here and go, Father, I care not about my plan. Reveal to me your truth, and I will give everything I am and everything I have to do your will. That's Christianity. Over here going, Father, make my will happen, that is not Christianity. And so we need to understand that often how Satan attacks is by presenting false gods. The second thing he does is he presents false religion. So again, pulling you to different ways of acting, different ways of believing. Look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I, I don't like to pick on other churches or pastors because my hope and prayer is that those men are people who have been called by God and are doing their very best to serve Him and to grow the kingdom. But my goodness, I cannot tell you the number of sermons I see online and on TV where I go, that is not the gospel. It sounds like a self-help motivational speech with occasionally a Bible verse thrown in. Hey, you want to be rich? Hang around rich people because God wants you to be blessed. Guys, nowhere in the Bible does it say God wants you to be rich. And in fact, nowhere in the Bible does it say you're going to have an easy, good life. All the guys who did this well, do you know how it ended? By the standards of the world, painfully and difficultly. Eleven of the twelve disciples murdered. I'm sorry, ten of the twelve disciples murdered. One killed himself. Jesus, persecuted, tortured, put on a cross. Most ended up broke at least from the standards of the world. Now spiritually, different story. Spiritually, they're men who go, bring it world. They're men who sit there and go, I have fought the fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race. I have crowns waiting for me in heaven. There are men who could face torture and sickness and death with a smile on their face because they knew they were part of God's kingdom. So there is an unbelievable treasure that God offers His children, but it's here. It's there. It's not in your pocketbook. It's not in the material possessions that you have. And so what's funny though is we see more and more Christians preaching and teaching this like, hey, you're good. Life's going to be easy. And you go, I don't read that in here. And see, brothers and sisters, that's why you, you, not me, have a responsibility to know this book. You have a responsibility to be aware that as I'm preaching, my job is to bring you the Word. But you need to be equipped enough and smart enough that if I start spilling the gospel not of this Luke, but of this Luke, that you go, uh-uh, that is not what the Father said. That is not truth. The problem is for a lot of you, if I have a pastor in front of my name, you assume everything I say is right. Know the Word. 
Because Satan attacks through false doctrine. The third way he attacks is through false identity. So he lies about who God is, and then he lies about who you are. Now, what you need to understand about Satan is he will normally go to the extremes. So for some, he will paint God as this horrible, mean, angry old man with a bunch of rules who's trying to make life hard. For others, they go, no, God is this soft, compassionate, anything goes God. He doesn't expect you to live in any way. He wants you to do whatever you want, and ultimately, he'll pull everyone there. The reality is the truth's in the middle. He's a good and loving God who does have a standard for his people to live by. And he offers unbelievable grace and forgiveness. But because of that, he wants to see a new life in them that leads them to learn a certain way. Satan plays at the extremes. He does the same thing with self-identity. For some of you, he's in your head day in and day out going, you're gross. You are a despicable sinner who has done nothing good in this world and you do not deserve the love of God. You're a failure. You're a mistake. You're a loser. And each and every day, he reminds you of every mistake you've ever made and he tries to drag you down into that despair. And for some of you, that puts you in a place where you don't want to move anymore. For others, he goes to the other extreme. He goes, you're awesome. You're great. You don't need a savior. You don't need someone calling out each day how to go. You've got this. You're brilliant. You're smart. You're capable. You're loving. You're a good person. Truly, if anyone deserves heaven, it's you. What he doesn't want you to settle on is the truth, which is in the middle. Yes, you were a despicable sinner facing death. But a God in unbelievable grace offered you forgiveness, and he has now brought up into you a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And through that, you've become a force that can go out to be light in the midst of darkness. See, he plays at the ends. But throughout it all, he's lying about who God is, what the church is, and who you are. Look at Romans 8.6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Each day, he's trying to pull you back to the old ways of thinking. Trying to make you think you're something other than what your God has made you to be. A false God, a false religion, a false identity of yourself. Fourth, false citizenship. He tries to make you and I think that we are citizens of the world. He tries to convince you and I that we should judge success and glory and greatness and goodness by the standards of the world, not by the standards of heaven. Christ is always reminding us, your home is heaven, not here. You're behind enemy lines. Do not become someone who looks at things through the lens of the world because the lens of the world will always be off. You belong to heaven. You are holy, which means set apart from the world. When people look at the way you and I live, they should see it's different. And that's why when the first, in the first century after Christ's life, Christians were known as the people of the way. Why? They lived a different way way. You knew them not because there was a fish on the back of their car or because they listened to K-Love, but the actions and the things that they did were so dramatically different that people knew you don't belong to this world, do you? You belong to the Father, don't you? 
you always know where your citizenship is. Look at Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Home is not here. It's why I long and look forward to the day that my father comes down and goes, let's go home, son. There will be no sadness to leave this place because this isn't my home. That is. And we need to be set in that day in and day out. False security. I think this is probably one of the biggest ones for Americans. He tries to make you feel like everything's okay. The biggest problem Christians have in America is it's easy to be a Christian. Nobody puts us in jail. Nobody kills us. No one doesn't hire us. No one doesn't attack us. We could freely come to church out in the open all day, every day, and no one cares. Amen. And for that, you and I go, life's easy. And that's why for the most of the time, we're never at battle. Most of us are, are, are fighting at all. I always kind of laugh because churches have like these Christian retreats. And often I'm like, what are you retreating from? Like at one point, you should have been on the advance. I don't know when that was. Because nothing in the actions and behaviors I've seen has seen a forceful group of people building the kingdom. I've seen a lot of people coming to church and sitting, voting and making decisions based on what they want, and being self-consumed. I haven't seen this force of people going, we are here to make disciples. We are here to put light in darkness. We are here to push back hate with love. And it's all because we feel like we've already done it. We've already won. Look at Luke 21.36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What's Jesus saying? Wake up. Wake up. You are not in some cozy, comfortable place where you can sit back in a hammock and chill. Your primary task should not be binge-watching Netflix TV shows. It should be wondering, how do we win this war? How do I find disciples? How do I bring people to Christ? That should consume you. It's not to say there's not moments of reprieve. There's not to say there's not moments of rest. There's not to say there's, a, there's not unbelievable moments of joy. But we should not think this battle's over. And I think a lot of us do. Now, there's two others I'm going to highlight, and they don't deal with lying. One, he divides. He divides and he conquers. In Titus 3, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. These words were for people in the church. Because often within our own brethren, there are people trying to pull us apart. Jesus told us, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. We as Christians are constantly pulled to offer grace, forgiveness, and pull together. Remember that yes, we are different, but we all have one spirit in us that is pulling us together for one mission. And we've got to hold on to each other. We've got to pull in together because the strength comes from Him and from the numbers of the body being unified. And then the last way, He persecutes. This is just, hey, I'm not going to take you, so I'm going to hurt you. I can't deviate you, so I'm going to bring pain. 
Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What are Jesus' advice on this? Yes, Satan can hurt you. It's funny, you and I, we miss this. But every day in this world, there are people who are tortured and murdered simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. What Christ says is, you remember, brothers and sisters, they can take your body, they can't take your soul. What truly is the value, I will protect. Now, why do I point out all those attacks? Because the biggest thing I want you to see is, do you notice one common theme in most of them? It's all lies. Yes, the division and the persecution are slightly different, but the main way that Satan attacks is through lying. He lies, he lies, he lies, he lies. He tried to lie to Jesus. He lied to Adam and Eve. He's lied throughout Scripture about who God is, who we are, what our mission is, and what we're supposed to do. Jesus warns us in John chapter 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So understanding that, understand that his main tactic is to deceive, to lie, to bear false witness. It makes sense that when we go back to the armor of God, that we see one of the first things that we start with is the belt of truth. Ephesians 6.14 Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, brothers and sisters, let me give you a little lesson on what these belts look like. And in fact, I was listening to a preacher talk about this week, and and he was saying, if you remember historically, Paul probably wrote Ephesians well in jail, probably chained to a Roman guard. So you kind of have this picture, like I can almost just imagine Paul almost at night, sitting there writing, looking at this Roman guard next to him and using the inspiration of his armor to write about what God wants us to be equipped with as Christians. And so, with the belt of truth, there's two components to it. The first is you have the belt itself that goes around the waist. Now, what you and I need to understand is back then, most people wore tunics, which were really just a a large piece of cloth with a head hole and an arm hole. Well, the belt... The belt signified something important because when you were not traveling, when you were not fighting, when you were not going to be active, you didn't need a belt. But it was in the moments of time where you were going to be moving, that you were going to be fighting, that you were going to be pushing forward, that you wanted to have your tunic secured. Because men and women think about running around and fighting in a dress. Not the best fighting gear, right? Like, has anybody ever wrestled with somebody when you didn't have the right stuff on and you get choked by your own clothes? Right? Or like you're playing football, but you got that big baggy shirt on and the guy, you're out running him, but he grabs the shirt and pulls you from there. Right? You do not want your clothing, you do not want your baggage being what holds you about. When you're in a fight, you want to have your clothes together, as they would say in the Bible, gird up your loins... Be fastened and tightened and ready to move. So the belt of truth had two aspects to it. One is this idea of truth itself. But really that truth, that biblical doctrine of truth, is going to be explored more in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What this truth really points to 
is an attitude of commitment. An attitude of truth and understanding what you're facing. When people would see someone with their tunic wrapped up and belted together, they knew those people were ready for action. They were ready for something to happen. Look at Luke 12, 35. Jesus says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. The same spirit there. Guys, do not let me show up and find you leisure about in your sweatpants on the couch with the lights off. When I show up and I knock on your door, she'd be like, ready to go. Let's go do this. I got my armor on. I'm prepped. I'm ready. Let's go. Not like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot you were coming. Um, give me like 35 minutes. Get ready here. Wait a minute. I've got two kids. Give me an hour and a half and I'll be ready. Are you prepared? The belt signified you're ready. You're ready for action. Look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 3-4. through four. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Similarly, as you're girding up your loins, as you're putting that belt on, what you're doing is you're shedding the excess baggage that would weigh you down for the fight. No excess junk is on you. Listen to John MacArthur. He's like, it's like watching someone run track in combat boots and an overcoat. Like, why are you running in that? That is totally not going to set you up for success. You ever watch track? What do they wear? The skimpiest things possible, right? They want no wind resistance. They want no baggy clothes. The shoes are as light as possible. It's all about what? Moving forward. Not carrying all this junk with you. That's what the belt of truth signifies. There's an attitude of readiness. I'm ready to go to battle. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. What Paul's trying to get to is what I was trying to share with you with Rocky. The whole movie's working out. But the first part, he's just going through the motions. Just kind of sleepwalking through life. It's not until his wife looks at him and says, you go win. But all of a sudden, he goes down focused. Now the whole thing's about winning. Now I will move. For some of you, you're going through the motions. I'm not saying you don't go to church. I'm not saying you don't read your Bible. I'm not saying you don't pray at night. I'm not saying that you don't try to have a relationship with God. But there's a fire that is missing. There's a spark that has been wiped out. And what God wants to see is that flame burning. That flame that says, you know you're at war. That flame that says, I will keep moving forward. He's got to see that passion. For some of you, your prayer lives are so focused on the wrong things. I guarantee in this room, at least half of you probably at some point this week prayed to just get through. Just get me through today. Just get me through this. Just get me to Friday. Just get me to the weekend. Stop settling for just getting through. You're the children of God. You've defeated death. You've been raised to royalty. Your eyes shouldn't be on getting by. 
Your eyes should be on being victorious. Your eyes should be on, God, bring me joy like I've never tasted before. God, bring me life that makes all other life seem like I was sleeping. God, bring me joy that overflows from my spirit. God, bring me purpose that is so strong, so passionate, that it wipes out the laziness and the tiredness and the weakness and it overflows into anyone that is around me. God, bring me a fire. That should be your prayers. I mean, guys, like think back to when you were in high school and you played sports. Did you ever get in the middle of the football field with your team and be like, let's just not get injured? <laughs> no! You jumped in the field and you screamed like warriors. You talked about championships and winning and devouring and punishing and winning. You didn't talk about, let's just make it through. But we get older and that becomes the prayer. Make it through. What? No! Win! Win! Do something. Achieve. Be victorious. And guess what? That's why a lot of you don't get the joy of Christianity. You're just trying to survive punches instead of delivering your own. You're just trying not to lose instead of trying to win. And brothers and sisters, well, it's nice not to lose. It's not very fun. What's fun is crossing that finish line in an exhaustion, falling on the battlefield and going, we won. We won. That's the fun part. But for some of you, Christ is going like, get on the field. You're like, no, I'll just sit here on the sidelines and watch. I'm good. Go team. And he's like, I want you to be on the field. I don't want you to just watch the game. I want you to be in it. That's the difference. And if you're not experiencing that, guys, like most of the joy he talks about, you're never going to taste. You're never going to taste it. You got to be out there. You got to be pushing. You got to be running for the finish line. There's a second part about this belt that I want to point out to you. The Roman belt, besides having the leather that held the tunic, had this strap that went across the chest. And on that strap, were stamps, marks, and insignias. And what these did is they reminded the men of either the division that they were in, but more importantly, of the battles they had already fought in and been victorious in. Why? To give them confidence. This belt wasn't just to say, I'm ready. It was also to remind you of what you've already won, what you've already achieved. Because brothers and sisters, there's our times when we stand facing the enemy in this moment and because we're not having the perspective to look bigger, we're terrified. Like, how am I going to face this? How can I be victorious in this? How can I defeat this? And what God wants this belt to remind you of is, remember where you've been. Your darkest day was that day my son was on that cross. Because on that day, you stood a sinner, guilty, deserving death. And on that day, you defeated death, your sin was washed away, and you were raised to royalty. So children, if that day has already come and passed, and you stood victorious, where you stand today is not scary. You remember what your father has already done, and you will remember what you face today is not 
something to be afraid of. You and I have this terrible ability to remember what God has already done. And throughout Scripture, He's calling us, Remember, I'm your Father. I've been there with you from the beginning. Remember the things I've done for you. Look at Nehemiah 5.19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. God calling people to remember. This isn't the first time I bailed you out. This isn't the first time I've been there for you. This isn't the first time we've done something amazing. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the people of Egypt are coming out of Exodus. For decades, they've been in the desert lost, pushing forward to get to this homeland. Finally, they arrive there, and what God does is this amazing thing to remind them of who He is and how He's been there. He asks them to cross the Jordan River, and He does it by separating the waters and having the people go across on dry land. Now, two beautiful things happen in that story. One is, the act itself is a reminder of what? Crossing the Red Sea. He's going, hey, you heard about your grandparents telling you about when I I split the ocean, or split the sea? I want you to see it for your own eyes. I want you to remember that today, as you cross into this new land that you don't know, as you cross into this new place that is filled with things that you're unaware of, that bring up fear, you remember, I'm the same God who split the Red Sea when the Egyptians were at your grandparents' back. I'm the same God who gave them dry land, gave them safe passage, and wiped their enemies away. I'm the God that was with them then, and I will be there with you today. He does this to give them strength. Now, as soon as they cross over, you know what he also asks? He says, get 12 men from the 12 tribes to go back in, and I want them to grab from the bottom of the Jordan River floor large stones and bring them out. And I want you to take these 12 stones, and I want you to set them up in a monument. Why? So that one day when your children go, what's that pile of stones? You'll go, those stones are from the day our Father in Heaven brought us to this land. Those stones are from the day that our people went out of the desert and into the promised land. God was thinking about future generations even in that moment going, you set up a monument to remember what I've done today so that in days in future come and you're scared and you're afraid and you're worried, you can look back and go, the God who got me through that is with me today. The God who made me victorious in that will make me victorious in this. Remember David? Why could David stand against Goliath? Because he goes, the God who delivered the lion and the bear will deliver this Philistine. It was what he'd already been through. Gave him the strength to keep on fighting. Brothers and sisters, do you have your belt on? Have you thrown away the baggage of this world? Have you girded up your loins? Have you got your tunic wrapped up? Do you have across your chest the remembrances of the victories that God has already given? Are you standing there going, I am ready. God, I know we're at war. I know there's an enemy. And I know that you've given me the power to stand my ground. That's what the belt gives us. It's an attitude of fiery commitment. And we should see it in each and every one of us. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come up with me. We're going to be here to pray with you. I'm going to ask that you just take a few moments where you're at to go to your Father.
and talk to him about the spirit of readiness that you have. Some of you, you're sitting on the couch and it's time to wake up. So go to your father and say, wake me up, Lord. I am ready to get in the game. And for some of you, you've been in the game. So you ask him to remind you of all those victories that he's already delivered to you to encourage you for the steps you still have to take. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.